The Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit is made possible in part by Mad Dog Professional Services. Mad Dog Professional Services focuses on putting their clients on the leading edge of technology faster than thought possible to capture new revenue streams. That's Mad Dog Professional Services. Good day, everyone. Happy Friday. Welcome to the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. You may have been expecting the Friday Follies. Don't worry. We've moved them to Monday. We figured Fridays are fun enough as it is. We thought we'd brighten up Mondays instead. So look for the Monday Follies coming up in just a few days here on Deadline Detroit. But anyway, getting back to today's program. A really interesting vote took place in the state of Ohio not that long ago. Voters in Toledo voted overwhelmingly to give some type of legal protection to Lake Erie to prevent pollutants and other sort of problems in the lake and giving residents an opportunity to sue on behalf of Lake Erie and its health. Can a lake be given legal protection and what does it mean for the environmental movement? My friend Nick Schreck from the University of Detroit Mercy, who of course is an environmental law expert, will join us to tell us what's at the root of all of this and what it might mean. So we'll talk about that. Also, something else to consider today. In this hyper-testing society that we live in for our kids right now, have we forgotten about the importance of play? We'll talk to Angela Rogensi of Playworks Michigan, a cool organization that is making sure that kids actually have time to have some fun during the day. That's all coming up on the Craig Folly Show here on Deadline Detroit. Stay with me. Well, I was reading something recently that I was completely fascinated by. It was a story that was talking about voters in Toledo, Ohio, and how they voted. Right? 60% in favor, as a matter of fact, of basically giving rights to Lake Erie. Now, they've had some significant problems in Toledo in recent years when it comes to algae blooms. Uh, in fact, they were without clean drinking water for several days in that community as a result of some algae blooms, which most people blame on industrial runoff and, of course, agricultural runoff that is finding its way into the western basin of Lake Erie. So what does it mean to give the lake rights? Well, we're going to talk about that right now with my friend Nick Schreck. Nick, of course, is a professor of environmental law at the University of Detroit Mercy. He runs the Environmental Law Clinic there, and he's a frequent guest on this program. Nick, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Well, Nick, I was really, really interested in this, and I haven't had a chance to talk about it yet. I've been meaning to for a while. Uh, But the voters in Ohio, uh, at least in Toledo, spoke resoundingly, 60% in favor of giving some form of rights to citizens on behalf of Lake Erie. I, I, I suppose a body of water can't technically have rights, but this certainly does seem to try at least to put power back in the hands of citizens as opposed to the government in determining what's acceptable for the lake. Well, yeah, and it goes even further. So this Lake Erie Bill of Rights, um, it tries to recognize Lake Erie as if the lake were a person. So to give rights, legal rights, legal standing to a lake, to a body of water is something that's you know unique here in this country. And what, what happened was, is you're right, you've had people are just getting fed up um, of trying to come up with ways to reduce pollution going in to Lake Erie. And really, this is a result of about five years ago, they had that significant algae bloom in Lake Erie that impacted the city of Toledo's water supply. So they had to actually shut down their water supply. And since that time, there's been frustration on the part of many citizens within Toledo about the slow pace of change and of trying to you know, go after large agricultural interests and businesses that are continuing to um, 
you know, emit large amounts of fertilizer, basically phosphorus and nitrogen into Lake Erie. So yeah, it, it's, it's, I think, born out of a lot of frustration from that, that algae growth and the drinking water crisis and people just looking for new novel ways to try and protect Lake Erie. Well, interestingly enough, I mean, I want to read some of the uh, language from from the actual statute that people voted on here, because I think it was very aggressive language and, and in a good way. If you're somebody that cares about the environment, um, I, I like this part. It says we, the people of the city of Toledo, find that this emergency requires shifting public governance from policies that urge voluntary action or that merely regulate the amount of harm allowed by law over a given period of time to adopting laws which prohibit activities that violate fundamental rights, which to date have gone unprotected by government and suffered the indifference of state chartered for-profit corporations. Yeah. Uh, that That's, I mean, signals, I think, a frustration with government. And it's not just oh. an old... No, you're absolutely right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's, I mean, you have people that are frustrated and they're also saying, okay, look, the way that we've done things, the way that we've regulated pollution into Lake Erie has been ineffective. That nod to voluntary programs, what they're talking about there is that under our Clean Water Act, that law was really designed to go after what we call point sources of pollution. So a pipe, you know, a factory with a pipe discharging waste into a water of the United States like Lake Erie. But what we didn't really do a good job of in the Clean Water Act is regulating what we call non-point. So that's that's runoff, you know, stormwater runoff in an urban area or agricultural runoff when the rain falls onto a, a farm field and grabs with it any sort of, um, you know, fertilizers or other pollutants and drags it into the water. Um, that's really where we, we've failed and our laws have failed. And I think there's a frustration here saying that, you know what, rather than asking farmers to voluntarily use less fertilizer on your field, what if we gave Lake Erie the ability and, and for people of the, in the city of Toledo to sue on behalf of Lake Erie to say that the lake has in its own right the ability or it should have the ability to function as an ecosystem and to provide drinking water for the citizens of Toledo. So yeah, it's kind of shifting the focus and turning on its head the way that we've regulated pollution. Uh, at least that's the attempt here. And and I should say that this is a novel approach and there's already been, you know, lawsuits filed seeking to, you know, invalidate and to issue an injunction to stop this law from really taking effect. Well, yeah, of course. And but the fact is the reaction was quite swift. So there is some concern out there that this may have some legal legs. Uh, again, you're an environmental law expert. This is a novel approach. What is your take on whether or not this is the kind of thing that if, if the will of the people suggests that this is right. the way that it should be? Is there is there a case here? Well, so so what's interesting is if you look at the way that, you know, really our courts have created the legal fiction of a corporation as as a person, basically a, a corporation that can um, sue and be sued. And that that is a, a legal fiction that's been created for corporate interests. And so, you know, the, the thinking is why not be able to give personhood legal standing to inanimate objects like a natural resource? And this debate has been going on in environmental law circles for decades, you know, looking at, you know, why can't we give legal standing to animals um, to, to be able, you know, say, um, a, a gray wolf, right, like that is now um, being discussed again about being removed from the endangered species list. You know, we've had this debate about giving legal standing to other inanimate objects, um, you know, other than humans. And so there's there's some history there that it's been evolving, but this is the first one that we've had. And so, I mean, I think there's definitely some there there in that you've got this, this ballot initiative passed. It's now on the books in the city of Toledo, and you need to have 
a test case to see, you know, what actually are the bounds of, of this new law. And I, I think there's been all sorts of hypothetical doom and gloom scenarios. You know, you could have someone in the city of Toledo suing a person in Wisconsin for activity they're doing that might impact Lake Superior, and then they could funnel down into Lake Erie. You know, you could come up with a lot of these hypotheticals that are pretty far-fetched. Um, and the fact is, like, right now, we just don't know, um, you know, what courts will say. But, but my, my hunch would be, as an environmental law practitioner, that you'll have courts try and set some limits, some parameters as far as, you know, the bounds of this this law here in Toledo so that you don't have residents in, in Toledo kind of meddling in the affairs, quote unquote, of, of other municipalities around the Great Lakes. Well, un- unfortunately, they are the ones that are disproportionately impacted by this. The worst pollution in the Great Lakes right now is, of course, in that basin of Lake Erie, the shallow section on the western side of Lake Erie, which, of course, borders parts of Michigan as well. Uh, that algal bloom a few years back, yeah. I, I believe they were without drinking water for what, 15 days? Um, I think it was, it was, there was definitely a crisis that was about that long, but they were actually shut down. I want to say it was, it was less than a week, like four or five days, but, but that's a long time, a significant crisis. Absolutely. And and there were, you know, people were getting sick. There were rashes associated with this. There's a bacteria called cyanobacteria that, that can be present when this algae um, dies. And so, you know, pets were getting sick from drinking the water. It's not a good situation. And so very real harm. And you're right. I mean, that the Maumee River Basin, which drains into the western the western basin of Lake Erie, um, that is a, a heavily um, intensified agricultural area where you have large farms, um, you know, th- which are really big businesses. I mean, there's there's this debate, and a lot of it's semantics over you know the family farm versus agribusiness or, or big business. A lot of these farms are massive corporate conglomerates that are you know very big, large facilities that are using a heck of a lot of fertilizer. Oh, by the way, they're fertilizing crops for things like ethanol, you know, corn to, to turn into ethanol or soybeans that are often uh, produced for export. So, you know, there's there's economic value being created there. But then the, the leftover environmental harm is something that's being visited upon the people of Toledo and on Lake Erie. So, yeah, I mean, there's they definitely have a legitimate beef in Toledo that they're they're dealing with all of this pollution from agricultural and business interests that aren't necessarily benefiting them. And they have to deal with the environmental fallout. Well, Nick Schreck, my guest right now, of course, he is a law professor at the University of Detroit Mercy, also runs the Environmental Law Clinic there, a frequent guest on the Craig Folly Show. Uh, Nick, you know, for me, this almost seems as if it's it's a real shot across the bow to government as much as anything, suggesting that, look, you have been not doing your jobs in terms of regulating this types of pollution for a long time. Uh, corporations have been getting away with things. 60% of the vote in a city like Toledo is not insignificant. Unfortunately, does it take the type of emergency like Toledo had a couple of years ago to wake people up to what's happening in the lakes? Well, I, I think we've we've been very reactive in our our policy and management of the Great Lakes historically. You know, you go back and you look at um, what led to the Clean Water Act in the first place. I mean, a lot of that was we had such drastic, horrible pollution in our Great Lakes, um, including Lake Erie, um, including in Ohio, you know, the famous Cuyahoga River catching fire. I mean, I mean, those were events where we had, we had so polluted the, the lakes that we had to come up with some way of trying to rein in that pollution. Well, now it's changed from, you know, a lot of these older industrial type of pollution activities that we have reined in through the Clean Water Act to this huge unsolved problem of agricultural runoff and non-point pollution. And so, yeah, I mean, we're, we're, you're seeing things like this algal bloom that leads to the shutting down the water supply for, for tens of thousands of people. I mean, that, that's a very dramatic incident. And it's something that that's, 
our reactive nature, unfortunately, we don't always get ahead of these things. It's you have a, a big, horrible event occur, and then we see some movement from policymakers. I think the frustrating thing for people in Toledo was that they weren't seeing movement on the part of the governor of Ohio or the Ohio legislature. In fact, they were very slow to react in Ohio um, to try and address this agricultural nonpoint pollution from happening. So the people have, you know, they've gone to the ballot box and they've said, this is something that we want to try and see if we can perhaps through this method um, lead to some improvements in water quality and at the very least prevent Lake Erie from suffering further degradation and further harm um, so that we can, you know, continue to have a water supply there for the public. Well, you know, Nick, this is not something that's limited to Lake Erie at this point. Of course, Florida dealing with red tides and a lot of that is, of course, directly attributable to, uh, you know, large agricultural activities near Lake Okeechobee and in the Everglades and the changing, you know, uh, changing aquaculture there. This seems to be something that people are going to be watching. Uh, Are you getting an inkling that there are other municipalities, other regions around the country that are going to try to follow Toledo's lead on this? Yes. And I think, you know, credit where credit's due. This is a legal theory that has come um, from, you know, largely from indigenous populations around the globe. Um, There was a a development in New Zealand a couple of years ago where a series of rivers was protected um, for the Maori people um, because of the, you know, significant cultural um, connection that, that, that those people have to that, that body of water. And so you've started to see this movement globally to recognize natural resources for their, their spiritual or cultural value. Um, and then now we're seeing a shift to look at recognizing them for their inherent value to us as humans. You know, we, we need water to live uh, no matter where you are around the globe. It's, it's something that we as humans need and require to, to function and to live. And so, yes, I mean, I, I do think you will see more of these types of, of proposals where people are going to the ballot box demanding action um, until we get some really comprehensive um, changes at the federal level, which is really what we need here, just speaking about the United States for a second. I mean, we need changes to our Clean Water Act to update it to deal with this problem of non-point pollution. Um, otherwise, we're going to continue to have further degradation of our fresh water supply. And, you know, with a changing climate, with a warming world, we're going to have more stress on our fresh water supply. And so I think if we're if our government's not reactive, you will see more and more people resorting to these types of ballot initiatives to try and force our governments to protect these resources rather than just waiting for the slow machinations of the political process to play out, which historically we've seen has, has taken too long and has allowed you know, continuous pollution of our natural resources. Well, speaking of slow machinations, the courts are not always the fastest way to go about things as well. But I have a feeling this is going to wind its way through. We'll have some hearings on this. And, you know, we have no idea exactly what's going to happen here. But theoretically, theoretically, if indeed this is something that passes legal muster and is allowed to stand, could this same argument be used to be more aggressive in in fighting things like invasive species? You know, we talk about the Asian carp every time you're on. Right. That's the kind of thing that could force the Army Corps of Engineers to to cut off access to to the Great Lakes from, you know, the Chicago rivers, for instance. Well, right. So let's let's say that if you were to take this this theory, this legal theory um, in another direction and say that, um, you know, we decide that lake trout in Lake Michigan um, should have legal standing and they, they should be able to exist and they should be able to enforce their rights to exist. 
um, that then potentially, you know, you could, you could have someone suing on behalf of, of lake trout to protect them and their habitat from the threat of Asian carp. Um, so, you know, or yeah, like water quality issues related to invasive species like zebra mussels that have, have changed the ecosystem of the Great Lakes. Exactly. I mean, yes, you could definitely see this theory playing out in different areas. You know, I think what will be fascinating to watch is um, the, the type of cases that are brought under this this Lake Erie um, Bill of Rights, that you know the type of litigation that's brought, and and how courts seek to limit it. You know, in other words, um, it doesn't make sense from a you know logical perspective that the city of Toledo can dictate all activity on Lake Erie for you know multiple states, uh, including the province of Ontario. You know, multiple countries as well. Um, you know that that doesn't necessarily make sense. However. The people of Toledo could potentially force through litigation within their own jurisdiction, within within the city of Toledo, they could force some changes to to the way that we regulate pollution that I think could be replicated elsewhere. And so, you know, it's it's definitely um, a move to address a serious issue. I think if nothing else, this has brought deserved attention to a really important environmental and public health issue in Lake Erie. And that's great. That already has some value. And yeah, we'll see how the courts treat this and what types of cases are filed. Um, but I think, you know, we have to be moving the ball forward because the way that we're currently working through the slow political process and slow legal process, we're continuing to harm these resources that, again, are necessary for us to live. Well, one last question for you, and this is something that, that has interested me. I mean, the city of Detroit's been under a federal consent decree for, I, what, 40 years almost when it comes to combined sewage overflows, which has been a significant uh, point source of pollution for the lakes, the Detroit River, and of course, uh, into, into this you know western basin of Lake Erie there. But also we're talking again about agricultural runoff. Is there a type of a scenario that you could envision in which farmers and the communities, the rural communities along the Lake Erie shore uh, would be required to monitor their their wastewater the same way that the city has been for so long. Yes, and that's that's the new tension we're seeing in in the law and in litigation, where you have there was a a lawsuit out in Iowa where you had I, I believe it was the city of Des Moines, Iowa, that was suing. Uh, they call them drainage districts, which are basically like county um, water management entities out in rural areas of of Iowa. And they were suing these drainage districts for saying that you you are conveying pollution from farm fields into um, the river that we then have to treat. We have to get rid of all of those organic uh, fertilizer pollutants to be able to, to provide drinking water. And so the people of Des Moines were having to basically pay to clean up this water that was impaired from agricultural users. And that's a tension that I think we're going to see play out over and over again, where when we don't, when we have one area agriculture that is not regulated nearly as um, vigorously as as like industrial um, emissions from, you know, industrial sources like industrial wastewater, that kind of thing. Um, you've got that tension. And so I think until we we do develop laws that really rein in the amount of fertilizer uh, or the type of practices farmers use, you know, they can plant, they call them buffer strips, which is like planting vegetation between their field and the shore of a creek or a river um, that, that can prevent some of that transfer of fertilizers and pollutants into a water body. But those have all been voluntary programs up to this point by and large. So, you know, what we need is a change in the law where we require those kinds of management practices to happen on farms or else we're going to continue to have this problem and that tension between urban areas and rural areas. Well, last question for you, Nick, as somebody who is an environmental law expert and environmental lawyer, you know, a case like this, what does this mean for somebody like you in terms of pushing the issue, forcing the issue in a way that hasn't been done in a long time? Well, it's, 
It's exciting. I mean, if I'm being honest about it, it's, it's fun to, um, from, you know, sort of an academic perspective to think about the possibilities here and, you know, where we could go um, from a resource prote protection uh, perspective um, with this type of, of Bill of Rights. You know, if we applied it to other natural resources, it's exciting to think about where that could take us. Um, but I will say the fact that I'm, I'm in the trenches a lot on, the, on behalf of my clients and, you know, working through a lot of these cases that, that I'm also, um, you know, hesitant to, to let that excitement really grow to the point um, where, where, I, where I want it to, because the reality is you, you know, the, these, these laws are only as good as they are at, at these laws are only as good um, as, as they are in front of a judge, right? So like how we can convince an actual judge or an appellate judge to look at this Bill of Rights and agree that, yes, actually Lake Erie does have its own legal standing. It does have the same rights as a person. And until we have that sort of stamp of approval from the courts, um, you have to sort of temper that excitement because it's just a new kind of uncharted territory. But yeah, absolutely. It, it's it's really fun to, to look at how... Um, a group of people in Toledo saw this as a problem. They know it's a problem. They organized, they got together and they, you know, they passed this, this bill of rights, which is pretty exciting. All right. Well, Nick Shrek, we always appreciate your time, sir. We'll be watching it. Anytime there's any sort of update on this, let us know and we'll have you back on, sir. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Craig. Craig Folly Show is made possible in part by Deadline Detroit, one-stop shopping for all your news. Also, home to Deadline Detroit TV, which includes The Zip, a weekly wrap-up of the week's news with some humor, and The Trip, wise relationship advice with hosts Megan Slattery and Tracy Evans. Deadline Detroit, one-stop shopping for all your news. This is the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Thank you very much for being with us today. We are, of course, doing these interviews at the Detroit Regional Chamber's Detroit Policy Conference 2019. And I've been sitting down with people all day from all different walks of life, different professions, to find out what they're up to and what their organizations do. And I'm really excited to have sitting with me right now Angela Rogensi, who is the Executive Director of Playworks Michigan. Angela, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. It's a joy to be here. And and when I first heard about what you guys do, I was like, well, that's of course I want to talk to her. But, but I think I'm going to give you an opportunity first to talk a little bit about the organization and, and what it is you do, because something like play and activity doesn't seem like something that we need to worry about, but we do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we are the leading organization nationally and in Michigan, leveraging the power of play to bring out the best in every kid. And we use play as a tool at schools to help children learn the life skills that they need to be successful in the classroom, on the playground, and in life. And so life skills like the ability to self-regulate, to have self-awareness, to develop really good friendships, or the ability to, to uh, relate to peers and adults, um, and kids learn a lot of that through play. And there's really diminished opportunities for play across the country. Um, and particularly, it's acute in low-income communities where parks don't exist. It's not safe to go outside. Um, families have smaller number of children, so there's less opportunities for playing. And because of rigorous testing and an emphasis on literacy and math, uh, which are super important, uh, schools have deprioritized de things like well, play. Lunch is a half an hour now. They don't get to go outside half the time. Recess doesn't exist in a lot of places anymore. And again, it's something that I think we take for granted because when I was a kid, we just my parents would say, go outside and play. Absolutely. Same with me. And it was self-regulated. We yeah. figured out our own games and did all that kind of stuff. But, you know, given where we are with screen time these days, again, as you mentioned, rigorous testing, tons of homework. 
how do you lose something like the ability to play? Yeah, I mean, I think it's happened over the past, you know, two decades, yeah. three decades, where we just haven't been able to create enough opportunities where we took it for granted. Um, we've also taken for granted that every family has access to sports leagues and can drive their kids to a very expensive volleyball league and have that same experience. Um, and there's just a lot of children that don't have that. And so, you know, small town leagues or leagues that happen in schools don't exist. Recess is very diminished. Um, real threats of safety or imagined threats of safety in, in higher income communities um, exist. And so there's a lot of things that keep children indoors um, under parental supervision that don't allow kids the opportunity like you and I had to kind of figure things out for ourselves and work with our neighborhood friends or friends at schools to be able to figure out how to solve a conflict or how we were going to lead uh, a game and what were the rules were. You know, at what point did we recognize the value of, of play when it comes to socialization and, and the way that we develop as, as, as young adults? At what point did we realize that this is actually a really important sure. part of our upbringing? Is, is this new science or is this something that we've known for a long time, we just have sort of ignored it? It's a great question. I, I don't know that um, folks have thought of it as being unimportant. I think it's just become deprioritized, uh, and especially in Michigan, uh, along with you know uh, music and art and a variety of other things that just kind of have been pushed to the side. Uh, I think uh, you can see it in today's world that play helps children develop the skills they need to be good citizens. And but and independent of their parents in many instances. Correct. Correct. Uh, we believe that kids can self regulate and organize games on their own and we go in and give them some some opportunity to understand the rules a common set of skills so that everyone is on the same playing field and can be able to engage in that um, but a lot of the kids are losing uh, or don't have the ability to engage and I think we see it in our larger society in a whole conversation on civility that we lack the ability to have empathy and to hear and listen and really digest what someone is saying and so um, it starts something as simple as like the ball was in or out and if we don't teach children how to resolve that conflict and how to do so in a way that uh, allows both folks to leave and go back to the end of the line and start the game over, then we've kind of failed as educators. <laughs> well, talk a little bit about how the program works and, and who it is you're marketing this to. And I don't want to say marketing is not the right word, but who is utilizing your services at this point in time? Are, are there schools, for instance? You know, you've got charter schools that maybe don't have a huge budget for like a gym program or something like that. Is that, is that where you're finding, you're finding your opportunities? So we have 72 partner schools across the state of Michigan wow. this year. Uh, a good chunk of them are in southeastern Michigan. Uh, we have all of our services revolve around a caring, consistent adult. So in some instances, we provide a caring, consistent adult to schools to do this work. In other instances, we're helping consult and train the grown-ups or the adults at the schools themselves to be able to do this work on their own. So our goal is to change public education. Uh, we want to deliver really high-quality, evidence-based uh services, but we really want to change the way that schools approach play and making sure that play is an integral part of kids' days. You know, when we talk about play in games, you know, there was a move against dodgeball for a long time in schools, for instance, because, well, one, it might hurt if you get hit in the face with a dodgeball, but there seemed to be this moving away, well, you know, it's too competitive, but, you know, teaching kids that there are going to be games that they're good at, there are going to be games they're not good at, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. If they don't learn that at a young age, I mean, how is, is that something that you have to incorporate into into this play thing that you know you're not always going to win? Sure, and it's okay if you don't. 
So yeah, we um, we use the language "good job, nice try" because we want kids to know that they have another chance, another bat. Yeah. That even if you don't do well at a particular game, our games are usually structured to create more opportunities for play because that's our goal. Yeah. Less about like getting hit with a dodgeball and sitting on the sidelines for 15 minutes waiting for the game to start again. We've created and modified things so that everyone can kind of get, get back, back in. Get back in there quickly. Yep, and so that's the, the whole point is to ensure that kids have the opportunity to, to play every day. Uh, we just have modified things so that they're a little bit safer, a little more inclusive, that you know, kid, one child isn't being picked on or excluded well, and, unnecessarily. And that's always the danger, right? Mm-hmm. It, when you're doing something like this, is there is always that one kid who maybe a little shy, maybe doesn't feel that confident in their abilities to do this, and and they do become victimized in some mm-hmm. capacity uh, by other kids who are taking advantage of that perceived weakness. Sure. Talk a little bit about a strategy to make sure that that doesn't happen, because again, you don't want to make the game too safe, but at the same time, you also don't want somebody being emotionally hurt by this experience. So we really focus on our core values, which are inclusion, healthy play, respect, uh, and healthy community. And so everything is really rooted in those things. Kids get it. Yeah, and we really, we, we teach those things, we model those things in everything that we do. And so it's very easy for us to say, like, that's not respectful. Um, we're going to all practice the skill so that we all have a level playing field. So if we have three-line basketball outside and girls don't feel comfortable playing basketball, we're going to make sure that they all get the same skill development so that they can join their um, uh, boy counterparts on the playground and not feel intimidated to jump in a game that they historically would stay on the sidelines and just watch. And so it's really about creating access and leveling the playing field and ensuring that kids have some foundational skills, feel confident enough to get in a game that they may not know, uh, and be able to uh, then go on and play a competitive sport or go on and play in a league because they have found some um, love for sport and play through our programming. Well, and that's a key component of this, too, though. It's fun, mm-hmm. right? Totally. There were certain games that I was not good at as a kid, and I would come around at gym class and be like, oh, we're doing this. I was never, like I said, not tall. Basketball was never my favorite sport to play. Um, Making sure that kids are actually having fun while they do this. And, and also getting exercise. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are two things. They don't always equate those two things together. Um, when you reintroduce somebody to this kind of thing, and a lot of kids, as you mentioned, have never really had these opportunities. What's the most rewarding part about it? I mean, when do you know that the light bulb's gone off for them and they're actually enjoying themselves? So if you visit a Playworks playground, generally the kids are all smiling and laughing and having a good time. They transition back to class with little incidents. So one of our... Um, metrics is that schools uh, in Michigan save, uh, educators report saving 17 hours of instruction time from recess back into class because the children have had such a good experience at recess that they feel comfortable going back into class uh, and they've had, they're not creating disruptions, they're not um, angry, they're not upset, they're able to go back into class and start learning. My guest once again is Angela Rogensi. She's the executive director of Playworks Michigan. We're talking about the importance of play in child, childhood development and, and making them just, frankly, better citizens, better people, better students. Um, and, and Angela, you know, it seems like a no-brainer. Schools used to do this kind of stuff all the time, but now there are organizations like yours that are doing this. And as you're going into different schools and trying to sell them on the importance of this program and, and you know, get them to participate, how do you measure success? What can you point to to get them to commit? So, it's a really heavily um, researched organization when you're talking abstract play, uh, we've had to build a, a, a library of research studies that support our work. Uh, we have a randomized control trial that shows uh, decreases in bullying and increases of student safety. But I think most importantly is at the 
end of each school year, we survey educators who are directly impacted by our programming at their school, and we find that kids are uh, last year, kids are far more physically active. Kids uh, are demonstrating more inclusion and diversity. Group kids are um, there's a reduction in bullying, conflicts, violence. Uh, and teachers are reporting about 17 hours of transition time that they regain as a result of a playwork so programming. You're actually asking teachers what they think about this yeah. process. Well, that's a first. I think it's about time. Yeah. Well, Angela, I mean, I think this is a fantastic program. And if people want information about what you guys do or maybe their kids in a school that's not doing this and somebody wants to reach out and find out what you offer, how do they get in touch with you? Sure. So, uh, backslash Michigan. Very good. That's the best way to get hold of us. Well, it's fantastic what you're doing. I appreciate uh, letting my audience know about it. And keep up the good work. It seems like a no-brainer, but um, maybe we need to be reminded every once in a while. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Angela Rogensi, Executive Director of Playworks Michigan, joining us here on the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Hey, thanks for listening to the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit on this Friday. I hope you enjoyed the program today. Don't forget, coming up on Monday, it looks like we're going to do the Monday Follies. We're going to be taping it somewhere around the globe. We'll explain a lot more about that. But it's going to be a shifting location from now on. Various spots around the globe. We are globe trotters. So we'll get into that. Anyway, that's going to come up on Monday. Hopefully you can join me there. Don't forget, if you would like to reach out, send me an email, thecraigfollyshow at gmail.com. It's easy to get in touch. Let me know some cool things that are happening in your world, an organization that you'd like me to highlight perhaps. And also don't forget that you can find me on social media. I'm all over Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, even Snapchat. So feel free to reach out to me and give me some suggestions, some feedback, all that good stuff. Have a fantastic weekend, everybody. We'll be back on Monday with a little bit of fun. The Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit is made possible in part by Mad Dog Professional Services. Mad Dog Professional Services focuses on putting their clients on the leading edge of technology faster than thought possible to capture new revenue streams. That's Mad Dog Professional Services.